we're in Exodus chapter 3. If you'd like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device, Exodus chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22. used to be you could wait until you quit hearing pages turn. Now you have to listen closely for fingers being... The topic here, before he leaves the desert to deliver Israel from Egypt, Moses asks God to tell him his name. The title of our message, I've been through the desert at a bush with God's name. Come on now. Anytime you want to suggest names to me, I'm open to it. My, my door is always open. All right, let's pray. Father, today as we get into this passage, as always, we pray that your presence here, guaranteed by your having raised from the dead and sent the Holy Spirit, that that presence, Lord, would minister to us, teaching us, but also making application to our lives so that by the time we're done, we are more like Jesus than when we came in. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. I thought Prince was a stage name, but it was his given name, Prince Rogers Nelson. In 1993, Prince announced that he would no longer go by the name Prince, but rather by a love symbol, which was a mashup of the gender symbols for man and woman. Presented all kinds of challenges for the media, resulting in the clumsy title, The Artist Formerly Known as Prince. Got to thinking about names, and I started thinking about Gaelic names. Maybe you're of Irish descent, and you want a beautiful Gaelic name for your baby boy or girl. Came across a couple of names. I'm going to spell them twice, and you tell me how you would pronounce them. How would you pronounce this girl name? A-O-I-B-H-E-A-N. A-O-I-B-H-E-A-N. It's pronounced Ivan. How would you pronounce this boy name? C-A-O-I-M-H-I-N. C-A-O-I-M-H-I-N. Quivine. So if you really want teachers to go nuts over your kids' names, <laughs> you've got Avon and Quivine, and you won't be able to spell them either, but at least, you know, they'll be unique. The pronunciation of the most common name for God in the Old Testament is unknown to us. It's called by scholars the tetragrammaton, which is just a big word that means consisting of four letters. In Hebrew, the name has four consonants and no vowels. It's Y-H-W-H. It may have been pronounced Yahweh. Uh, I watch some of these guys on YouTube who are either Jewish or um, uh, completed Jews, and they, they say Yahweh, Yahweh. I, I can't even hardly do it, but, so I don't know. That, that's a possibility, too. Uh, we can't say for sure because Jews came to regard the word with such reverence they quit speaking it aloud for fear of taking it in vain. And there's a big debate as to when they quit speaking it, whether it was after the Babylonian exile or sometime as far into history as the 3rd century A.D., but uh, the pronunciation is lost to us. It's said that whenever a scribe came to this uh, name in the Old Testament, when they were recopying, that they were required to wipe the pen and ceremonially wash their entire body before writing it every time. When they would come to it and they, in their reading, they would say the words, the name, 
and everybody would know what they were talking to. Or they'd substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord. The word Jehovah originated from an attempt to pronounce the consonants with the vowels from the word Adonai. Whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters in your English Bible, it is this tetragrammaton, it is the Yahweh. Our verses this morning are maybe the most important in all the Bible for understanding this name of God. God commanded Moses to go to Egypt and to bring his people Israel out of captivity. Moses asked God what his name is so he could tell the Israelites who had sent him. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's the Tetragrammaton, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. One more insight before we dig into the text itself. In the Gospel of John, Jesus was in a confrontation with the religious leaders. They accused him of being demon-possessed. We pick up the dialogue in chapter 8, verse 56, with Jesus talking. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's that tetragrammaton again, only Jesus uses it of himself. In fact, the Gospel of John records seven I am declarations by Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great I am. It was him talking to Moses from the burning bush that wasn't consumed. Let's see what he has to say to us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, I am has come alongside you. And number two, I am becomes all he's promised you. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, we'll look at him coming alongside. Now, when you study the places where I am is used and meditate upon them, you come to certain theological conclusions. For example, God is self-existent, God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, God is the creator, God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. That's just a brief listing of the kinds of conclusions that you come to from this I am name. The majority of us are believers in Jesus Christ. We never tire of being reminded that God is self-existent and omnipotent and omniscient, that he is the creator who is immutable. But those things, as important as they are, they mean so much more when we realize that I am also means that God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. When God told Moses his name, he also made it clear to Moses he would be with him. And so let's listen in. In verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go out to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? If you weren't here for our previous studies and you haven't watched the Ten Commandments in a while... I need to catch you up on the story thus far. Moses' life was miraculously spared by the providence of God. Instead of being drowned in the Nile River like so many other Hebrew babies, he came to the attention of Pharaoh's daughter. She adopted him and raised Moses as her own son in the very palace of the Pharaoh. After 40 years walking like an Egyptian, Moses instead identified with his own heritage, the Hebrew people. When he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite, Moses intervened and he murdered and buried the Egyptian. He thought the Hebrews would welcome him as their deliverer. They did not. He was forced to flee Egypt as a fugitive into the desert. 
There he came upon a group of shepherdesses trying to water their flock, being mistreated by the local male shepherds. Moses came to their aid, came to their father, Jethro and Midian, and eventually became the husband to the oldest daughter. Moses tended sheep for the next 40 years of his life. One day he looked over and he saw on Mount Horeb a thorn bush burning but without being consumed. Every time he looked over there, it was still on fire. Intrigued, he approached the bush only to be spoken to by Jesus from the bush. The Lord started revealing his plan to send Moses as the deliverer of the Hebrews in a showdown with Pharaoh. Moses had a few questions which eventually are going to turn into solid objections. His first question was, who am I? Forty years as a shepherd had taken a toll on Moses' plans. Before his stint in the wilderness, he thought everybody would recognize his unique readiness to deliver Israel. Now he hesitated. I'm not really sure how I feel about his hesitation. On the one hand, humility is certainly commendable, and it's preferable to his earlier bravado. But at the same time, if God says he's chosen you, then shouldn't you simply say yes? Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. If God says you're the guy or you're the gal, then true humility simply submits to it and obeys. Part of the answer, I would guess, is to understand, and I'll quote Hebrews, all these saints, meaning the Old Testament guys and gals, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Moses may have been talking to God in the bush, but he had much less information than we do. We should always cut Moses some slack and hold ourselves to a higher standard. And and that's always the case with these people and these characters, beloved in the Old Testament. While we get application from their lives, you have to remember that we know tons more about God through his revelation than they ever did. Moses is going to be the guy who writes the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They don't exist, you understand, when he's at this bush. All they have is oral tradition, and uh, he didn't get a whole lot of that in his 40 years uh, growing up in Egypt. And so for him to be hesitant, uh, yes, it's wrong, but it's so much more wrong for us if the Lord has called us to something and we are hesitant. So we don't want to have a false humility. We want to have a proper humility. And when God has told us to do something, then we go forward in his power. Verse 12, so he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. If you're on a mission, especially a difficult one, you want the hero to accompany you. In the Tolkien universe, the travelers are always disheartened when someone like Gandalf or Aragorn can no longer go along with them for the journey. And so this is a tremendous encouragement to Moses when God says, I will be with you. I certainly will be with you. Uh, we'll return to this in just a moment. God said he would give Moses a sign. Now, we tend to immediately look ahead to chapter 4 where God gives what we consider signs. First, God turns Moses' staff into a snake and then back into his staff. And then second, God turns Moses' hand leprous and then he heals him. And so those are some, some pretty prominent signs that happen right then. 
In chapter 4, they're described as signs by which the Hebrews would believe God had sent Moses. The sign God gave Moses that he would accompany him, he said, is when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In other words, it was a sign that wouldn't happen for a long time. God said, it's a sign, but you get it after you're done with your assignment. It's in the future. It was God's word, and therefore it must come to pass. God was assuring Moses he could and would accomplish his word, but Moses must believe the sign by faith. We find ourselves trusting in a future that we can only know by God's promises. I believe I will either be raptured or raised from the dead. But that's in the future. It's something that hasn't happened yet. It's a sign that I know will occur because I have God's word on it. I also happen to have a much greater foundation than a guy like Moses had because I can see in the past that my Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead guaranteeing my resurrection. He is the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. Nevertheless, that sign is still future to me even though I believe it. And so here's what I'm getting at. We talk about signs and wonders and how they can accompany God's word and you know healings and miracles and things like that. And certainly there's a place for them in, even in uh, modern Christianity. But we fail to remember that God's word and every promise in it is itself a sign because it will come to pass. It doesn't have to come to pass right now for it to be a sign and for me to know that it's true. So any promise that God has made you in his word is a sign of his faithfulness. And so it just kind of takes promises up to a next level. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, I am, Yahweh, Jehovah, spoke to Moses and promised, I will certainly be with you. He's done the same thing to us. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, it's reported of Jesus that he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. In John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so we have many, many strong promises of God's constant, abiding, forever presence. Oswald Chambers wrote a devotion he titled, The Never Forsaking God. Part of what he said is this. He says, I will never leave you, not for any reason, not my sin, selfishness, stubbornness, nor waywardness. Have I really let God say to me that he will never leave me? If I have not truly heard this assurance of God, then let me listen again. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel as though you've been abandoned by God or you feel that you're unworthy of God. The Lord has promised you, I will never, not ever leave you or forsake you and you need to throw yourself on his mercy. Chambers went on to say, I will never forsake you. Sometimes it's not the difficulty of life, but the drudgery of it that makes me think God will forsake me. When there's no major difficulty to overcome, no vision from God, nothing wonderful or beautiful, just everyday activities of life, do I hear God's assurance even in these? Whatever you're going through, whatever you will yet endure, 
Jesus will most certainly be with you. You'll find that his presence might be all you have, but his presence is sufficient. It is a sign that he cannot renege on. I am becomes all he's promised you in verses 13 through 22. In volume one of the on-screen Guardians of the Galaxy, Peter Quill says to his would-be captor, there's another name you might know me by, Star-Lord, to which his adversary says, who? It unnerves him that his reputation hasn't gone ahead of him. If you're going to deliver several million people from bondage out of one of the most powerful kingdoms on the earth, you'd better have the reputation to back it up. And so Moses said to God in verse 13, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? When God revealed himself to man in the days of the patriarchs, it was often associated with a new name or title uh, that commemorated what he was going to do or what he had done. For example, Abraham, in his encounter with Melchizedek, called on God Most High. Abraham later encountered Almighty God. Abraham came to know the Lord as everlasting God and the Lord will provide. These were all names that were given God in his encounters with Abraham. When Moses comes to the elders of Israel with a new message from God, it's logical to think they're going to ask him, what name did he reveal himself to you under? What new revelation from God do you have? And God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I am or the tetragrammaton, I am that I am, these are all used interchangeably. They're not different names. They're all nuances of the same name. And really, Yahweh was not exactly a new name. We can say that because Moses' mother's name, Jacobed, means Yahweh is my glory. And so Yahweh must have been in use during the days of Moses. Moses and Israel knew, to a certain extent, the name Yahweh, and apparently they were still pronouncing it. But God did not give Moses a new and improved name. He gave them a name that they had known before. But he couples it now with, in verse 15, where he says, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. And so God was calling them back to the faith of the patriarchs, not to something new. They would understand that they were part of an ongoing story. And one commentator calls it the unfolding drama of redemption. And so God is, is this is a critical moment in Israel's history. And he's saying, I am the same God who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am. And we'll talk more about what that name means in a little bit. But he wanted them to know that they were part of something that was ongoing. Now, for one thing, God had revealed to Abraham that his descendants would be in bondage 400 years. And then they'd be dramatically delivered to receive their inheritance in the promised land. As I said, the Jews didn't have the book of Genesis. They didn't have the written word, but they had an oral tradition. Uh, and in that tradition, they, they could have remembered that God had told Abraham what was going to happen. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah, 
the scroll of Jeremiah, and he sees there that the Babylonian captivity is going to last 70 years, and so he knows that they're getting at the end of that, and it spurs his praying and uh, gets some prophetic things going. The Jews, as I said, they didn't have the written word, but they could have known that God had spoken to Abraham at a certain point in time, and they were getting near the end of those 400 years. And so this is a way of God connecting all of this and making them see that they were part of an ongoing story. God was no distant deity who finally decided to help a group of people. History was unfolding just as he had foreseen it. He had been involved with redeeming lost mankind ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. The Exodus was just another important chapter in that drama. So you and I understand that. Uh, we sometimes don't dwell on it, but we understand that obviously this happened from eternity past. But starting with the Garden of Eden forward to the last chapter of Revelation, we're seeing one story unfold, and it is the unfolding drama of how God is going to redeem the lost human race by coming into it as the God-man. And so everything in it is an advancement of that plan And so even though the Jews had been seemingly languishing in captivity for 400 years, God was working behind the scenes and everything was under his charge. You and I are part of that same ongoing plan. In our case, we live in what we call the church age when the gospel is going out into the world. It's a mystery that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but it's part of the same drama. God has stopped his dealings, direct dealings with the nation of Israel. The gospel is going out to Jew and Gentile alike. Once the resurrection and rapture of the church takes place, God begins to deal with Israel again. Seven-year tribulation, thousand-year millennial kingdom, then eternity. So we're, we're inserted as a part of that, uh, and it's all unfolding just as God provides for it. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. There's that tetragrammaton, the word Lord, all in capital letters. Moses was to go first to the tribal leaders called the elders. When it says God visited, it means something like he observed them. After 400 years, it must have seemed like he was a passive observer, someone who decided not to get involved. You Star Trek fans, how many times did Captain Kirk violate the prime directive? I mean, it was almost always the the subplot. The prime directive was that as an advanced species, you were not supposed to get yourself involved with or interfere with what was going on in these primitive societies on these various planets. But Kirk just couldn't help himself. He always had to intervene and do what was he thought right. And, and it seems like God, to some people, it seems like God is that way. If you're in bondage for 400 years, crying out to God, not remembering the prophecy given to Abraham, not having anything helpful happen, in fact, it got worse, it, it sort of seems like God is not involved. Scholars label this idea deism. It says that God does not interfere or intervene directly in the world he created. It rejects revelation as a source of religious knowledge, and it asserts that reason and observation of the natural world are sufficient to determine the existence of a single creator of the universe. So deism is interesting. A lot of times deists are seen as Christians, 
and that's not really true. A deist says, I can by logic and observation come to the conclusion that there must be a God who created all things and set all things in motion. But because they don't believe in any revelation from God, they see God as a distant person who doesn't ever interfere. The universe just goes on according to its natural processes. And so that's deism. And I could see being a deist in uh, ancient Israel when you're in this kind of bondage, but it's not so. God was making moves behind the scenes. He was providing for his prophesied plan to deliver Israel and for his plans well beyond their bondage and their exodus through the end of the age. They just lived at a particularly difficult time. You know, there are people who live at more difficult times. It's just any student of history will tell you that. There are times you wouldn't want to have been alive. Actually, most time you wouldn't want to have been alive. You ever, ever watch some of these period dramas and think, what must it have smelled like? What was it really? I was watching something the other day. I think I told you this about six months ago. It was like dirtiest cities in the world or something like that. And, and they, were going, they were talking about in medieval times going into London and how people, they created like wooden clog shoes because the, the, the stuff that you had to walk through was like six inches deep with entrails and human feces and mud and just, I mean, you know, they didn't have a modern street system or anything. What must it have been like? I don't want to be alive in any other time. Of course, if we were be able to live, in, if, if, if man can survive another hundred years, as the song goes, they'll look back and think this is barbaric, whatever we're doing today and stuff. And so it's all relative. But um, I don't have any idea why I'm telling you any of this, but... <laughs> says in verse 17, I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. I almost see this like, and I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which would you like first? The good news was that God would deliver them from their bondage in Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, that's great news. Your bondage is almost over. You're going to get back to business as an agrarian culture, and it's going to be super successful. Milk prices are going to go through the roof. You're going to have all the honey you want to put on your toast. The bad news was that even though it was their land, it was full of fierce enemies who for 400 years had entrenched themselves and would need to be driven out by force. Enemies who had walled cities that seemed impregnable and who were defended by giants, Nephilim. So much so that in the book of Numbers, when they come up to the border of the promised land, they say, we're not going in there. There's people in there that are so big, we're like grasshoppers in their sight, and they're going to eat us. And so forget it. And, and so it was a good news, bad news. I said almost. I can't really see it that way because the so-called bad news, the Lord had promised to be with them. Of course, there were battles to be fought, but the battles belonged to the Lord. And he wanted to increase and enhance their faith by him, uh, them simply just trusting him. And when they did, they were unstoppable. They were undefeatable. Uh, you know, the nations fell before them. They were like the hornet going through the wilderness. Exodus 3.18, Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him... The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness 
that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. If the goal is to be delivered from Egypt, why ask for a brief holiday with the implication they would return after worship services were ended? Well, I think it was to show that Pharaoh was hardened against the Hebrews. If he wouldn't let them have a long weekend, then he certainly wasn't going to let them go free. Moses asked a small thing that wouldn't have really put a kink at all in Egypt's economy, wasn't dangerous, and Pharaoh was going to say no, and so certainly he's going to say no to the larger one. When you and I are in some difficulty, enduring some trial, it seems like God delays his deliverance. Maybe it's because he's providing an opportunity for someone involved in it to repent, especially if your problem's with a person who seems to be against you. Let's say you're having trouble with a boss. This is common in, uh, in the world. And you, something's going on, and let's say it's actually unfair. Uh, and so you pray about it, and you come to church, and you pray with one of the guys about it. You go to a prayer meeting, you've got a bunch of... And things, instead of getting better, they get worse. Well, you're in a situation like Moses and the children of Israel find themselves in, where they go to Pharaoh, and not only does he refuse, uh, things get worse. But God is establishing that he is giving Pharaoh opportunity in order to have a change of heart. Now, he also foresees, in a minute, what Pharaoh's ultimate answer is going to be. And we're con- we get confused because we think, well, if he knew what Pharaoh was going to do, is he giving him a real opportunity? And the answer to that is yes. Because if he's not giving him a real opportunity, then he's a liar. And we know that God can't be a liar. And so in your case, back to your case, it's, nobody wants to suffer, nobody wants to be mistreated and all. But a lot of times, God has you in a place so that he can give someone the opportunity to repent and so that he can establish what's going on in their heart. And I've seen situations through other people's lives where things got worse and worse until they dramatically got better when their boss went through a trial of his or her own and sought them out because he knew or she knew that there was something about their life that he or she wanted for themselves and because of the way they comported themselves the whole time they were being mistreated you don't really know what's going on in a person's heart even if they tell you the heart is wicked and deceitful you see these people on television sometimes celebrities they talk about how wonderful their life is how great their marriage is and 10 minutes later they're divorced and they're suing each other people lie people are liars especially non-believers and so you don't know what's going on or how God is using you And you don't need to. It's just up to us to try and walk with the Lord. I'm sure the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. Of course, he knew how Pharaoh would respond, but God did not cause him to refuse. When we'll get there, we'll see it was his own free will decision. Verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. A contest of the gods was shaping up. Yahweh versus the gods of Egypt. Each of the Egyptian gods would be defeated one by one, leaving no doubt that Yahweh alone is God. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go, you shall not go away empty-handed. Every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." This would be a great theme for a scavenger hunt, an adult scavenger hunt. You go to your neighbors and say, hey, we're doing a 
an exodus scavenger hunt, and I need gold and silver jewelry and fine clothing. How would you like to be used by God? I don't think that would go over. It's a stunning reversal of fortune. The exodus would be financed by the Egyptians. Some see this as a sort of back pay for their years of enslavement. Uh, Maybe, but this passage isn't about social justice or making reparations. It's about redemption. It's about God's plan to redeem lost mankind by sending a savior through the Hebrews. The massive amounts of gold and silver would be of little use to the Hebrews in the wilderness. There were no Walmarts where they could exchange that money for any goods. In fact, the gold and the silver would mostly go towards the building of the tabernacle where God would have his presence and meet with them and where the sacrificial system and the calendar of feasts would tell the story of redemption through Jesus Christ. So this was money and uh, precious metals, actually, that was going to go towards the story of redemption, not towards reparation. Nobody sat around and thought, well, I've, you know, I finally got what I deserved. They're going to give most of this to the building of the tabernacle. I said that in these verses, we'd see that I am becomes all he's promised. I got that idea from a passage penned by a language scholar. He wrote this. He says, I am is essentially a verb of becoming, not merely of coming into being, but coming into relationship. That is, becoming this or that to someone. This tense yields the following rendering. I am becoming or I will become. It's full of promise. For example, I will become to Israel what I will become, all that it is in my heart to become to them, all that they need. Their redemption is in me, and therefore out of the fullness of my nature shall it be unfolded act by act, step by step, stage by stage. And so I am, as a name of God, is a declaration that he will become everything that is needed step by step in your walk in order to fulfill his promises to you. So his name isn't just... You know, it's not just a definition, omniscient, omnipotent, self-existent, all of that. It's also a promise of becoming all that he has promised you he would become. It is the name that assures you he cannot and will not fail to accomplish what he has promised. He'll never leave you or forsake you, and being with you, he will provide everything you need. Now, the question becomes, what do you need? And the answer to that is everything you need in order to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the bedrock. That's the the end game. You and I become Christians, and then we are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It means that God, who has begun a good work in us, will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's become popular for... uh, Believers to call one another Christ followers. It's, it's sort of a, a modern thing that people like. It's, it sounds hip and, you know, uh, I'm not hip, so I don't use it, I guess. But anyway, I still prefer Christian. Christ follower is great. That's, we're supposed to follow Christ. But we're supposed to also be like Christ. And the idea of that I'm a Christian reminds me that I am becoming more like Christ all the time. And that this is what God promises me he will do and that he will certainly do it and he has everything I need in order for him to do it. Day by day, moment by moment, I can become more Christ-like. And God knows what I need. 
Some of you are familiar with the teaching and writing ministry of H.A. Ironside or Harry Ironside. Uh, I highly recommend his commentaries. You find them a lot in thrift stores in the book section. I don't know why people don't want to hang on to these, but uh, they're fantastic. Especially if you can find the ones with the old-fashioned book jackets. Some amazing old art on those. Uh, So anyway, if you ever see H.A. Ironside, grab that. And if you've already got it, grab it anyway and give it to somebody. Great commentator. In his biography by a guy named E. Schuler English called Ordained of the Lord, a story is told of a time when he was an itinerant uh, evangelist going from church to church by invitation. Uh, And he wouldn't even get an honorarium. And so he found himself running out of resources and literally sleeping on park benches. He had no money for a hotel room or uh, even for food, and he found himself hungry. Uh, Applying a verse in Philippians, Philippians 4.19, God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Ironside concluded that God knew he needed a starving. I was a young Christian when I read that, and it, it really set me back. You see, I believed, and I still believe sometimes, if I'm a Christian serving the Lord and I'm hungry, God owes me a hamburger. <laughs> or maybe spaghetti in my case. But, you know, that, and, and this is actually, this is an aside, but this is sort of the basis of the health and wealth doctrine. You should always be healthy. You should have all the wealth that you need. But it doesn't make you Christ-like. It's the, it's, it's the antithesis of being like Christ. Because you have everything you need in a material sense, you don't get what you need spiritually. And so Ironside was mature enough to know that God must think he needed to starve for a while in order to do what? To conform him into the image of Jesus Christ. Once we get our heads wrapped around this idea that God is changing us and transforming us and conforming us into the image of Christ little by little, then everything in our life is transformed as well and we can see how God might be able to use it. Paul the Apostle needed starvings and shipwrecks and scourgings and imprisonments and even a thorn in his flesh. He received all of them as things that he needed in order to be more like his Lord. God is conforming us, not making us comfortable. There'll be plenty of time in eternity for you and I to be comfortable. The goal of our lives now is Christ-likeness. A life of ease and comfort can never conform you to Christ, who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who had no place to lay his head, who suffered so much on our behalf. Now, God is not the cause of bad things in our lives. We live in a fallen creation where sin and death have a foothold and where Satan is the God of this world. But we can be assured that when God permits our suffering, he can use it to conform us into the image of Jesus. I'll close with a paragraph from my reading that sums up nicely what we've been saying. God has a glorious end game in mind for us. The end game for this physical life is only the beginning of the next life, eternal life. God, with all the power at his command, is committed to getting us there. As 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 reveals, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be presented blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. That's a sign to you. Every bit as much as if a miracle happened today or some wonder happened in our midst. Paul says, God will sanctify you completely. 
Your whole spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord. He is faithful and he will do it. Even with our resistance and our hesitation and our disobedience through our life, God said, you can count on me to get you to the end. How much more then we should just let go and cooperate with God? Purge sin from our lives. Get rid of the leaven that's in our lives, that's sin, that's puffed up. And, and, and quit saying no. Quit saying, who am I that you would send me? And just go and just do the things he wants us to do, knowing that he has promised he will get us to the end. Jesus is I am, ever with us, becoming everything he's promised us to complete the work he has begun in us at his appearing. Let's pray.